You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can find You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com, where you'll find all of the back episodes. You'll find a link there to send me a message, and you'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. The content from this episode comes from a book called Seeds of Occupation, Seeds of Possibility by Andrea Nolan Brower. I found out about this book because Andrea Nolan Brower reached out to me via that link at youcan'tbeneutral.com and let me know that she had recently written this book and would I like to take a look. And uh, I said, absolutely. And here we are going to be reading chapter nine from this book on this episode but here before i get started we'll give you just a tiny bit of background um this is a one paragraph from the introduction to seeds of occupation seeds of possibility this book is a story of rising people's movements and the horizons of possibility they are opening as well as counter movements that aim to blunt resistance and solidify the status quo. It is also the longer story of how the agrochemical industry came to occupy Hawaii in the first place, where the history in plantation agriculture and oligarchic rule, Hawaii is an epicenter of Bayer, Monsanto, Dow DuPont, Corteva, ChemChina, Syngenta, and BASF's global chains of production. Dubbed GMO Ground Zero by activists, the most geographically isolated islands in the world have hosted more experimental field tests of genetically engineered GE crops than any other state in the U.S. These activities are almost entirely the domain of the four largest agrochemical seed biotech conglomerates, which function as a global oligopoly. Their operations in Hawaii are pesticide-intensive, use and pollute public lands and waters illegally taken from Kanaka Maoli, native Hawaiians, and are premised upon ongoing U.S. occupation of the islands. Chapter 9. Seeds of Possibility Capitalism has compelled rapid changes in Hawaii over the past century, from an outpost of U.S. plantation sugar production to a tourism military mono-economy with, quote, diversified agrochemical GMO operations at the periphery. Recent global maneuvering and consolidation within the agrochemical oligopoly is again changing Hawaii's landscape. Companies have changed names, reduced operations, and pulled back from some of their most impactful fields, likely in response to growing resistance. As they abandon workers and lands, the voids left will be filled by the next corporate barons, if not seized for other purposes. The industry will merely relocate its exploitation, likely to places where protections for people and environment are even more scant and resistance is met with a heavier hand. This has already begun in Puerto Rico. In Hawaii and elsewhere, things could be very different from the way they are. Much of the work of movements today is to steadfastly assert this fact through vision and organization. Swelling waves of intertwined environmental, decolonial, economic, and social justice struggle in Hawaii hold great potential in this regard. These contemporary struggles are seeded in soils laid by generations prior, including powerful sovereignty, labor, and anti-racist movements. They are shaped by Kanaka Maoli epistemologies and practices that have long refused erasure by colonial capitalist rationalities 
and intrusions. As much as plantations and oligarchies define Hawaii, so do these glimmers of other worlds. A food system for people versus profit. Hawaii's movement challenging the agrochemical industry certainly confronts systemic conditions of capitalism. It demands people over profit and health before wealth, and thus speaks to the heart of what capitalism is all about. However, the movement is not generally a radical political struggle. Particular corporations are the primary subject of resistance, rather than the logics and processes of capitalism itself. There is a sense that exploitation is a result of aberrant corporations, bad government, or some other form of corrupted capitalism, not the actual core drivers of the system. Agrochemical seed biotech companies' actions are interpreted as the evil doing of moral outliers versus the rational result of a profit-driven system. The assumption is that good capitalism can exist once government and business is made good. The system itself is rarely up for critique. Void of systemic critique, Hawaii and other localities' environmental justice conflicts are vulnerable to being twisted into a battle between defense of livelihoods and defense of life and earth. The inability to counter the pernicious jobs versus the environment trap stems partly from lack of structural consideration about economic dependencies, inequalities, and ultimately the structures of capitalism. Specifically, an oligarchical, plantation-fashioned capitalism. When certain social arrangements are assumed to be natural or unchangeable, it is accurate to say that regulating corporate employers could result in lost jobs, economic deprivation, and paved-over agricultural lands. Livelihoods in competition with the future of life on the planet is an entirely capitalist construct, and one that only intersectional, systemically-oriented movements can rescue us from. Even without completely escaping capitalism tomorrow, building a class-based critique and the power of the working class can deliver more equitable and environmentally sane possibilities in the near term. This, however, is not fully centered in Hawaii's anti-agrochemical industry movement. Though somewhat short on class and worker-based analysis and power building, Hawaii's anti-agrochemical industry movement is not unconcerned with lost livelihoods. Most typically, local food production is proposed as a straightforward substitute for agrochemical operations. While promising and necessary for many reasons discussed below, there is a need to consider how localization can deliver more liberatory futures when still embedded in the hyper-capitalist compulsions that have delivered the corporate industrial food regime. As Raj Patel and Jim Goodman put it, quote, It's rarely profitable to farm agroecologically when the rules of the game reward ecological devastation, worker exploitation, and monoculture. The local is celebrated as carrying forth particular values that oppose those of exploitative global capital, but competitive profit maximization still structures local economic relations. For local food businesses restricted by capitalism structures, Profit generation must take at least equal priority to more qualitative and justice-based concerns. How to make enough to sustain operations and have even a small profit is a real challenge with inflated land values and cheap imports. In other words, the wider context of a corporatized, monopolized, industrialized food system constrains even those attempting to work outside of it. Furthermore, the structural incentive for exploitation of people and environment still exists at the local level. In Hawaii, a subset of farms producing local food have proven to have worse labor conditions and pesticide practices than agrochemical GMO operations. In fact, recent pesticide data revealed that just a few large farms producing diversified crops for local consumption and pineapple for export on the island of Oahu used nearly two-thirds of all RUPs in recent years. Larger studies elsewhere have also shown that there is nothing inherently less oppressive about small or local farm workers. 
Of course, there are innumerable examples of local farms that prioritize social and environmental goods. But only policy and structural change, not markets, can make these the incentivized norm. Even without an overhaul of the global industrial capitalist food system, policy actions within Hawaii can go far in developing a food system that puts equity and ecological regeneration at the center. Many Hawaii farmers and food activists are involved in such projects, working beyond markets and consumer demand to change state and county policies in ways that incentivize a more regenerative, healthy, and equitable food system. Examples include policy initiatives around land and water use, publicly funded support for agroecological and traditional Hawaiian agriculture, farm-to-school programs, state procurement of local food, expansion of supplemental nutrition assistance programs, SNAP benefits, including discounted local produce, government-supported distribution systems like farmers' markets and food hubs, taxing highly processed imports to fund health and nutrition programs, raising the minimum wage, and more. Local food projects are often layered with anti-corporate and sometimes post-capitalist ambition. Concerns for equity in the environment and immediate food justice implications. Localizing food production has the potential to offer significant and prompt environmental benefits in decarbonization, provide livelihoods outside of the service economy and military, deliver nutritious food, especially to those who are food insecure, and remove at least some decision-making from global capital. For geographically isolated islands currently importing an estimated 90% of their food, local production can be far more ecologically and economically resilient. As the COVID-19 crisis continues, there is widespread focus on just how vulnerable Hawaii's near-complete dependence on food imports is and the potential of a cascade of negative consequences to our food security, health, and well-being in a future with an unstable climate. Most generally and beyond Hawaii, for those concerned with equity and sustainability through local food, it is critical to assert the impossibility of realizing such goals by way of the very forces that manifest the corporate food regime. A focus on change primarily through markets and raising consumer demand, quote, vote with your dollar, results in development of niche ponds of healthy local food for those who can afford it. The wider ocean of corporate control destructively produced incredibly unhealthy food remains and is not threatened or displaced by niche ponds of good food. The only way to change the larger landscape of food production is through political struggle. Only policy and systems change can transform the food system into one that is actually designed to equitably meet human needs through regenerative agriculture versus one that is designed to maximize profits for the already wealthy. A critical turn might be marked by merging widespread demands for people before profit, with goals of local food production in ways that involve more socializing, democratizing, and decolonizing political change. In Hawaii, rather than opposing capitalist logic as it relates to agrochemical corporations while valorizing local markets as their antithesis, the movement might consider what a local food system by different logics could look like. Again, while changing global capitalism is necessarily a global struggle, local potentials can merge with global ones. To give just a few examples, emphasis could be put on returning stolen lands and waters to Hawaiians, democratizing ownership and workers' cooperatives from production through processing and distribution, living wages for food system workers, and all, heavily taxing corporate monopolies that undermine local provisioning, public procurement to guarantee stable markets for producers, expanding subsidized food for those unable to afford it, open-source science, technology, and seeds, free education in regenerative agriculture, Robust incentivization of regenerative agroecological methods, including through strong regulation of negative environmental externalities. Public infrastructure for closed-loop waste and nutrient cycling and other infrastructure development for a regenerative local food system. As indicated above, elements of such initiatives are already well underway. Ultimately, 
an equitable local food system requires that the people of Hawaii are able to afford local food. Instead of competing to grow local food as cheaply as possible so working-class people can afford it, the wages of working-class people must rise dramatically while other basic living costs housing, health care, child care, education, transportation, etc. decline or are made public and free. Once again, much must be changed at national and international levels. There are constraints to what can be accomplished locally when overarching systems and higher levels of policy are still structured to incentivize a race to exploitative profit generation and capitalist consolidation. However, everything listed here could be at least partially pursued from within Hawaii while embedded in wider and more globally scaled movements. Political intervention at the site of local food projects is especially powerful in relation to decolonization and place-based Native Hawaiian initiatives. Historically, political activism has been inseparable from cultural and resource practices, including growing food and taking care of one's land and people. Kanaka food projects often directly challenge and remedy plantation inheritances and colonial dispossessions, including water diversion, knowledge and genetic expropriation, and land restoration. Increasingly, food sovereignty itself is viewed as a pathway towards sustainable self-determination. Many Aina-based projects aim to create livelihoods for young people outside of the tourism agriculture plantation economy, while also dismantling colonial plantation ideology. One native Hawaiian educator describes preparing youth for a new future, quote, helping them to see the environment as their ancestors did and the potential for it to sustain us again. The rising number of creative projects across Hawaii's indigenous food sovereignty movement affirm and teach a Kanaka view of the land, described by Pulama Collier. Quote, Aina Mamona, Fertile Land The land is our ancestor, teacher, parent, provider, and nurturer, continually shaping us and defining us. Hawaii is an island nation protected, preserved, and nurtured by our oceans, lands, sky, and heavens. Land, Aina, is abundant, rich, and living. We connect to our land as we connect to ourselves. To see our land as Aina Mamona is to also see ourselves as full of life, fertile, abundant, and healthy. As a decolonizing project, Hawaiian food sovereignty is connected to the wider food sovereignty movement, led especially from the Global South. More than market and consumer-centric efforts to increase local food, food sovereignty situates the development of regional food systems within the politics of wealth and resource redistribution. Producers' rights to the means of production, including indigenous rights to their land, water, and seed. Democratization and dismantling transnational agribusiness's monopoly power. Ultimately, the food sovereignty movement is a vision for a food system that is about meeting the needs of people and the earth versus the profit desires of the 1%. Decolonization and Settlers in the Occupied State A significant political and cultural re renaissance began in Hawaii in the late 1960s and 1970s, and today it has escalated to a broad decolonization movement, encompassing diverse tactics and aims. The strength of the movement is evident in water rights wins, protection of sacred places, land occupation and reclamation, legal fights for political independence, uncovering and retelling of history, language and cultural revival, Hawaiian charter schools, and much more. Kamana Maikalani Beamer writes that Native Hawaiians, quote, have endured successive attacks on our national identity, our lands, and our language. Through the reclamation of our collective past and a surge of political and cultural awareness, the national consciousness has reemerged. The vibrancy, intelligence, and growing power of the movement is a force that is shaping the future of the islands and indicates the potential, through struggle, of more just, equitable, and emancipatory horizons. Because the agrochemical industry's occupation of Hawaii 
brings to the surface the long and continuing history of the imbrication of plantation agriculture and imperial occupation. Decolonization and agrochemical industry resistance frequently converge. Place-based indigenous food practices, water rights battles between Hawaiian taro farmers and chemical companies, the leasing of state seized lands to agrochemical operations, biopiracy and intellectual property patents, and demands for political and resource self-determination are just some of the sites where this is most visible. Resistance to agrochemical operations has also been salient in widening Aloha Aina movements, though most typically translated simply as love for land, the concept of Aloha Aina is more capaciously about spiritual belief, land management ethic, and Hawaiian sovereignty. Contrary to how it is used by the chemical companies and economic political elite more generally, to quiet and shame dissent, Aloha itself, quote, requires one to speak in the face of injustice. Pushing back against ways in which aloha has long been used in attempts to depoliticize and individualize issues of structural injustice. Kamana Ma'i Kalani Beamer writes, quote, Aloha is active and something that needs to be put into practice, not something that is a state of being. The problems around social, cultural, and ecological justice in Hawaii are not insignificant, nor are they something that we can will away through selfless compassion. To invoke aloha is to call for actively confronting systemic injustice and to organize around aloha aina is to link social, cultural, and ecological justice. Aloha aina encompasses belief of the reciprocal relationship between people and aina and responsibility to protect aina. Distinct from Euro-American concepts of nature as separate from human culture, aloha aina is about interconnection and human embeddedness in the wider web of life. It has been a rallying call for Native Hawaiian rights and sovereignty, including the 1970s movement to protect the island of Kaho'olawe from military bombing in the cultural revival of the following decades. In recent years, Aloha Aina has united a multitude of struggles around land, food and agriculture, development and urbanization, protection of sacred places, Native Hawaiian rights, and sovereignty. Veteran Kanaka activist Walter Ritt asserts that, quote, if we don't come together, if we don't unify, we're going to lose our natural resources. We can conquer everything if we can come together. The banner that puts all of us in the same room, under the same coalition, is Aloha Aina. If we all love the land, we can be on the same team, no matter what nationality you're from. That's the end goal, to build our coalition under the banner of Aloha Aina. While decolonization and resistance to agrochemical operations are intimately connected, they are not always in straightforward or synergistic relationship. Aloha Aina, for instance, can be a slogan that many mobilize behind without understanding or supporting its decolonial significance. There is often objection to the agrochemical industry without concern for United States occupation and the dispossession of Hawaiians as the most fundamental condition of oligopolies functioning. The GMO Ground Zero movement must center and directly confront this fact if it is to address the systemic causes and effects of the agrochemical industry in Hawaii. This includes accounting for the role of settlers in the movement, who, for example, can also be entangled in processes of gentrification and displacement of native Hawaiian and working-class people from the islands. Related, the oppressive role white cultural imperialism has played and continues to play in Hawaii is generally neglected by white settlers. White activists sometimes do not recognize long histories of racial hierarchy and violence in the islands and how their own discourses energize rather than dismantle racism. For instance, comments about plantation mentality disparage the agency of working-class people of color and erase long histories of radical resistance by plantation people. 
As Chris Leong describes, condescending and patronizing attitudes have been woven in with structures of racial oppression since white imperialists arrived in the islands. Reminiscent tones of racialized superiority are experienced today when white settlers victimize or instruct those living near agrochemical fields. Racialized savior mentality stands in the way of solidarity and intersectional movement building. Many settler activists are aware of these dynamics and determinedly organizing within the movement to educate, build more intersectional solidarity, and dismantle internal oppression. Like all highly decentralized movements, less-than-liberatory elements always need to be challenged, and there is concentrated work within the movement to do so. While not without contradiction, Hawaii's anti-agrochemical industry movement is highly entwined with numerous nodes of resistance to U.S. occupation and imperialism. Given the significance of large capitalist agribusinesses to Hawaii's continuing colonial history and power structure, its centrality in recent struggles is notable. Moreover, there are convergences of movements that indicate deeper solidarity and commitment to wider change. It is in this intersectionality of struggle, as witnessed in recent Aloha Aini mobilizations, that single-issue-based activism might transform into more radical systemic consciousness and movement building at the root. Internationalism Focus on the particularities of the issue and local situation is critical to immediate and urgent environmental justice. At the same time, the movement's wider emancipatory potentials lie in simultaneously advancing systemic and global analysis and solidarity. The global political economy shapes the local landscape in ways that must be understood and countered. Ultimately, the globalized nature of racialized capitalist exploitation and its entwinement with imperialism demands internationalism, which can be locally rooted to match it. As might be noted more generally in social movement struggle today, capitalism's globalism is frequently thought to be best countered through the local rather than through a global local politics that also claims a universal ethic. When internationalism is abandoned, even in unintended ways, localism can work to narrow the frames of care and responsibility. For instance, scholars of agri-food movements have identified the rise of a type of defensive localism that encourages responsibility and care within demarcated boundaries and pits regions against one another. Given capitalism's competitive and divisive dynamics, these tendencies are not unexpected. Their appeal in social movements indicates openings for reactionary politics, a challenge for Hawaii's movement to continually seek ways to change the local situation that simultaneously involve advancing global justice and solidarity. While there is need to be cautious of defensive localism tendencies, it would be a mistake to characterize even highly localist engagements in Hawaii as necessarily lacking internationalism. The movement in Hawaii is a product and aspect of the constant global circulation of ideas, strategies, experiences, and relationships. Local and global actions feed one another. There is ever-increasing connection and collaboration among activists worldwide especially in proliferating food sovereignty, energy and climate, mining, and local environmental and resource struggles. Sites of resistance are frequently globally linked in praxis. Moreover, internationalism and system-oriented struggle can emerge from within resistance that is initially compelled by what is proximate and immediate. In Hawaii, connections with international food sovereignty and justice movements have expanded local activist analysis and focus. Internationalization has opened space for more radical critique as Hawaii's movement interacts with struggles of the global south. Peasant farmers and farm workers, especially women and indigenous people, have traveled to Hawaii to teach, learn, and build solidarity. They have informed the movement not only about particular agrochemical injustices in other locales, but also about related matters of U.S. imperialism and trade, gender oppression, poverty, inequality, migration, and agricultural workers. People's engagement at the local level is often in part motivated by desire to affect the global. 
What happens in Hawaii has repercussions far beyond the islands. Today's global integrated supply chains create points of extreme vulnerability for capital. Hawaii is a strategic node of resistance to the agrochemical industry's global production and power. Many activists are neither oblivious nor ambivalent to this. Even highly localized engagements can be undergirded by goals of global justice. A most important matter becomes how to take cross-border solidarity to a level beyond knowing and caring about the plight and fight of others to articulating common cause and coordinated struggle. This challenge is most salient in regard to Puerto Rico, also a U.S. island colony with three or four growing seasons per year. Puerto Rico has historically been second only to Hawaii in the number of genetically engineered field trials conducted by the agrochemical industry. As resistance in Hawaii has grown, companies are expanding their presence in Puerto Rico. Over the past decade, substantial public lands and financial resources have been quietly transferred to the industry at the same time as imposed debt and austerity rob Puerto Ricans of basic necessities. Resistance within Puerto Rico is starting to boil as people living near fields express similar concerns about pesticide use. The details of how activists in Hawaii organize alongside Puerto Ricans as the industry relocates to evade regulation and resistance are still evolving. Many activists in Hawaii understand that isolated, singularly focused struggle in a world of globalized capitalism can equate to simply chasing Monsanto out of one's own backyard. Ultimately, it will take deeper levels of globally connected organizing to sustain the level of challenge necessary to overcome consolidated global capitalist power. Influence on and by the mainstream American food movement. In bringing pesticides, producing communities, and collective political engagement to the forefront, Hawaii's movement works to shift a conversation that in recent years has been somewhat dominated in the United States by individualized consumer concerns and market-based action. Mainstream food activism in the U.S. has tended to reproduce neoliberalism's core ideas of social change through individual behaviors, markets, and entrepreneurialism. Such trends indicate a moment marked by depoliticization and lack of critical thought about or beyond the structural compulsions of capitalism. Capitalist agriculture's imperatives to accumulate, consolidate, dispossess, and exploit appear to be ever-expansive and are hardly threatened by a rapid rise in organic and fair trade, farmers' markets, and public attention to food matters. While niche markets of good food for those who can pay are increasingly available, Rapidly destructive agricultural production also grows. Corporate agriculture has even gained new profit terrains in recuperation of social ideals. As Walmart goes local, Nestle goes fair, and organic dollars go to Coca-Cola, General Mills, and other food processing giants. The general discourse around and critique of genetically modified foods can similarly be individualized, market-focused, and void of structural critique. While activist concerns related to genetic engineering are broad, they are often framed as problems of the thing itself, for example, anti-GMO, rather than problems of the social conditions, relations, and paradigms that make a technology function as it does. This is not to dismiss that many are concerned specifically with the potential consequences of manipulating organisms' genes. Rather, the point is that considerations of and possibilities for systemic change remain limited when the core subject of critique is technical, not social. Capitalist enclosure, commodification, exploitation, and power come to look like problems of a technology rather than the basis from which particular uses of technology materialize. In the most limited of anti-GMO activism, the endpoint might be an agricultural system purged of genetically engineered foods, but thick with patents on conventionally bred plants, controlled by a few mega-companies, and continuing to incentivize highly environmentally destructive practices and technologies in the pursuit of profit. 
While mainstream U.S. activism around GMOs has centered largely on consumer health, individuals' right to choose, and corresponding campaigns to label GMO-containing foods, Hawaii has begun to bring to the forefront things that have been somewhat sidelined. First, it makes clearer the ways in which a handful of colluding corporations are using biotechnology to entrench a pesticide-intensive industrial-style agricultural system in which they control both the seeds and the chemicals. Second, it draws attention to producer communities and environmental justice concerns. And third, it illustrates the need for and inspires a possibility of collective political action. These are critical openings as they orient a more systemic critique and attention to issues of justice, while also challenging neoliberal rationality that justice can be achieved through the market. Moreover, while sometimes lacking in structural critique, it is also true that concerns about biotechnology are frequently tied to demands for the commons. Most notably, social movements are rejecting the idea of seeds, genes, and life as ownable. In Hawaii's movement, these calls for commons extend to land, water, and air as elements of existence that all of humanity must be stewards of. Often grounded in Hawaiian epistemology, the movement declares that people have a collective kuliena, responsibility and privilege, to malama, take care of, these commons for both future generations in the non-human world. Commitment to the commons undergirds objection to the agrochemical industry's use of land and informs alternative versions of using land in ways that serve the collective good. These ideas indicate critical yearnings and struggles for change at the root, regardless of whether they are explicitly anti-capitalist. Seizing the Possible The greatest potentialities of Hawaii's anti-agrochemical industry movement lie in inspiring and influencing wider systemic struggle, both organizationally and ideologically. This is not to abandon the specificities of the issue, but rather to think and organize in ways that are also systemic and intersectional. Rather than an outside prescription, this is an observation of much that is already happening. The development of solidarity across issues that are joining in the streets, advocating and organizing together. Policy changes that directly confront Hawaii's plantation history and offer protections to those who have long suffered its consequences in the invoking of values and possibilities that upset capitalist and colonial rationality. A most critical battleground of all social movements today is over what is considered possible in the social order. Neoliberalism's colonization of the collective imagination has left activists and those whom they seek to appeal to often incapable of thinking outside of the limitations of not merely capitalism, but capitalism in its most rapacious form. It is essential to identify, expand, and embolden the liberatory threads within social justice struggles as they contain seeds of freedom from neoliberalism's ideological grip. In Hawaii's anti-agrochemical industry movement, Demands for health before wealth and people before profit call attention to capital's core drives and invoke antithetical values. There is articulation of the fundamental conflict between the logic of capitalism and the very things most would claim to value. This includes the movement's call for the commons, for the recognition that some things belong to us all and that it is humanity's collective responsibility to steward the earth. Capitalism's core drive to privatize what has and could be common is a direct point of resistance, especially in regard to seeds and genes. Further, the movement envisions and seeks to create systems of production structured by logics different from capitalism. Specifically, there is an attempt to embed food production in values of ecological sustainability and equitable access to nutritious food. Building alternative food systems is also viewed as a way to escape chains of global corporate exploitation. While structurally limited, what people are aspiring for is a production system that is about meeting human and environmental needs, rather than about the ever-expansive accumulation of profit. Again, this is a critical opening that could move in more system-oriented directions of socializing, democratizing, and decolonizing food production and distribution.
There has long been a relationship between land, food, and cultural and political sovereignty in Hawaii, and the movement feeds these struggles as it exposes and challenges the intimate connection between colonialism and capitalist agribusiness. In all of these elements, Hawaii's agrochemical struggles incite both collective responsibility and power, a direct assault on neoliberalism's depoliticizing and individualizing aims. Social change is not left to the terrain of market-based activism for those who can afford to vote with their dollar, rather than an individualized not-in-my-body politics of shopping decisions. Hawaii's struggle against the agrochemical GMO industry is about fundamental matters of communities most impacted by production, and changing policy and systems through collective action. In activists' bold challenge to global chemical companies, they have inspired belief in and illustrated the necessity of social change through bottom-up people power. In these ways and others, Hawaii's movement begins to unshackle collective imagination from capitalist and colonial logics. These are critical openings that can be expanded. Movement work includes not just practical outcomes, but constant revolutions at the level of common sense. Even from within the specificities of a political conflict, the wider horizon of what is considered to be possible in the social order must constantly be pushed. If today's common sense of social possibility is left unchallenged, aspirations for justice are severely diminished. Godfather of neoliberalism, Frederick Hayek, understood this well, describing it the war of ideas. Those who have concerned themselves exclusively with what seemed practicable in the existing state of opinion have constantly found that even this has rapidly become politically impossible as a result of changes in a public opinion which they have done nothing to guide. The corporate counter-movement in Hawaii provides valuable insight into how possibility is narrowed and disciplined and why the grander war of ideas is the most critical terrain of all struggle. This battle is only more intense at larger scales and as progressive movements gain power. Elites and their ubiquitous mechanisms of propaganda are working ceaselessly to lock down the future by convincing the masses that anything more humane is an impossibility. Whether in the fight for climate justice, abolition of student debt, defunding the police, nationalizing banks, pesticide protections, clean water, taxing the rich, or overthrowing capitalism, all political battle today involves recoding what is believed to be attainable. Recovering possibility from the terror of ideologically imposed impossibility. When the ideological instruments of impossibility of, quote, no alternative or natural order of things are removed, what we are left with is a society in which the 26 richest people are as wealthy as the poorest half of the world. Alongside unfathomable inequality and unnecessary human suffering, we have a system that is compulsively producing the non-negotiable planetary conditions for its own extermination. The urgent gravity of the global situation necessitates a radical at-the-root response. There is no future in capitalism's, quote, realisms. In the bleak myth that we must choose between our livelihoods or the earth, the economy or the environment, people or the planet. Even dwarfed bits of justice are said to be impossible when we limit our demands and struggles to fit within these confines of the present. When wider systems change is not an option, circumstances appear immutable and injustices enshrined as the inevitable order of things. This is not to suggest that justice is achievable only with the complete annihilation of capitalism and its interdependent forces of racism and imperialism. Gains can be made that bring us toward more emancipatory horizons from within the conditions of the present. Harnessing imminent and immediately available possibilities has the potential to open new horizons of possibility and unbind constrictions on the unthinkable. Thus, even more limited and reformist struggles must engage in the wider war of ideas, denaturalizing the cruelty of this age and feeding the potentials of radically different, positively more humane futures. Without doubt, this is a historic moment of decision. Fascism, 
xenophobia, more extreme austerity, neoliberalism, and fattened empire are all scrambling to claim power from multiple intersecting crises. Signified in the elections of Donald Trump, Rodrigo Duterte, Jair Bolsonaro, and others, fascism has returned from the margins to the mainstream. As Naomi Klein and others have warned, fascism is and will continue growing with climate change. We are already in the, in the dawn of climate barbarism. At the same time, people's movements are growing more intersectional and systemically oriented, both in ideology and organization. They are asserting bold visions that actually take seriously the fact that we must change everything in order to avoid catastrophic climate unraveling. Even in the United States, there are signs that the war of ideas is beginning to be won by strongly progressive forces. Polls show a majority of Americans consistently favoring the Green New Deal, universal health care, increased taxes on the rich, tuition-free college, paid parental leave, raising the minimum wage, and other measures that defy the decades-long neoliberal consensus. A majority of young people go as far as to say that they do not support capitalism. The battle over public common sense is raging as neoliberalism's ideological lockdown is collapsing. This is only ramping up as COVID-19 unveils the remarkable racial, economic, gender, and environmental injustices of the present. While the pace of change is quickening, the direction of that change is always up for grabs. The scale of injustice and brutality in our present is often used to provoke despair and cynicism, to blunt resistance by convincing us that humans are incapable of anything better. Today's movements must recognize and politicize the fact that we are capable of so much more. Despite the inhumanity that our system demands, we do not abandon our most intrinsic human drives for mutual aid, compassion, and solidarity. We are, quote, supreme cooperators, with an astonishing degree of altruism, and we evolved to be that way. This is most evident all around us all the time in people's moment-to-moment -moment generosity and sensitivity to the well-being of others. Though frequently negated, overlooked, suppressed, or enclosed, such capacities could be the driving force of our public lives together. We must not end with the tale of futility, taking today's horrors as evidence that we are incapable of something better. The world that the vast majority of us long for is actually here, innate in our most common interactions and aspirations. It only needs to be freed. And that will just about wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. To find out more and find all those back episodes, you can go to youcan'tbeneutral.com. And for episodes and news about all of my podcasts, you can follow me in the Fediverse at movingtrainmedia at collectiva.social. And you can listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. With the song Plant the Seed from the album Resiliencia, this is Taina Asili with our moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. This is my declaration to be fully alive, fully alive, healing. This is my reclamation of my ancestral, ancestral wisdom. Yeah.